0: Brothers and sisters, it's good to be together again on this Lord's Day to uh, dig back into God's Word and see what He has for us this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8, Acts 8, as we get back into our study in the book of Acts, and to uh, see where we are in the story I'd like us to go back to the beginning actually, to Acts chapter 1, uh, so we can pick up where we are in this story. So if we look at Acts chapter 1, this is before Jesus ascends back into heaven. He has been resurrected from the dead after the crucifixion. He met with his followers for 40 days to prepare them for his departure. And they ask him in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus said that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, as the story unfolds, we see that the Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem with observable signs. We read about the rushing wind, tongues of fire, and speaking in other languages. The gospel is preached and many people come to faith in Jesus, and the Jerusalem church is born. And as the church in Jerusalem continues to grow... Opposition also begins to grow, starting with reprimands, progressing to beatings, and then rising to the execution of Stephen that we read about in Acts chapter 7, his execution by stoning. And all of this because of the hatred of the religious leaders towards the preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection. So today we're going to look at what happens after Stephen's stoning. And two things to notice right away. If you look in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of his execution. Luke intentionally, as Luke is writing this narrative through Acts, he intentionally mentions Saul. As we're going to read more about him in chapter 9, he uh, brings his name up to alert us to this person. And then also in verse 2, we notice that Stephen is buried and is mourned. This was a sad day for the church. It's easy for us to read these words dispassionately and go through them and forget that this really happened. This was a man who was very dear to them, who had been executed for his faith in Jesus, and they were mourning greatly over that. Well, let's walk through the rest of this passage now to see what God is doing, and we're going to see some strange things going on, as you may have already noticed as we go through that. But what we are hoping to see is that we will see that God faithfully builds his church, conquering all forms of opposition to the growth of his church. So before we dig in, I'd like to just stop, uh, if for nothing else than for myself, just to pray again and ask God's blessing on our time. I'm going to pray with using some excerpts from a song called Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo, echo down through eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna look first at verses one to three in a section I've entitled, God Scatters His Church. Nothing real original there because we see Luke reports that on that day, in that day that Stephen is executed, a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem. A great persecution on that day. I don't know exactly, was it immediately that day? Was it the next day? But it was a short period of time, I can imagine Saul after everybody picked up their coats from stoning Stephen, going back to his office and starting to make a list of what he's going to do. And it says there in in verse 3 that Saul was ravaging the church, ravaging the church. This is not a soft word. This is a word that means showing brutal and savage cruelty. Brutal and savage cruelty. He was going house to house. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you accepted this new false religion about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? What was he doing? He was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Again, more sadness within the church as they realized that their newfound faith that had given them so much joy in the Lord was now costing them their lives and their families and their positions. Well, one result of this persecution is that Luke records here that the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles who continued to stay in Jerusalem. And there were others as well, I'm sure. But look, again, Luke is intentional about his language here. He says they were scattered to Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Because remember, we read in Acts 1... You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke is intentional in his direct reference to what he had already said in chapter 1. But here are some things that are hard to understand. Why does God allow persecution to advance his people out of Jerusalem? Luke doesn't say that God was forcing them to leave because the apostles and other believers were refusing to go to other places, and besides, at other times, God had moved his people as he spoke to them in dreams or visions, as he spoke to them directly, we'll see that next week, as he picked people up and moved them to another place, which we'll also see next week, or he worked through circumstances. So why does God use persecution to advance his people out of Jerusalem? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. The ways of God are beyond our understanding. Laurel and I were part of a church for 20 years, invested life and effort and blood, sweat, and tears to a church that no longer exists. It's a very sad thing. That local congregation is no longer there. But what happened, and I don't know why, I don't know why, but what happened? All the believers there who have been grounded in God's word and the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ have been scattered to various places around this country and perhaps around the world for reasons that only God knows. John Stott said it this way in his commentary on Acts. He says, what is plain is that the devil, who lurks behind all persecution of the church, overreached himself... His attack had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the church, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. What was designed to destroy the church served to extend it. God sometimes allows and uses the intentions of evil for his greater purposes as he does here. Another example is clear is the cross of Jesus Christ. The The men who hated Jesus and all that he stood for committed him to crucifixion, thinking that they were rid of him. But what did they do? Unwittingly, they just fell right into the plan of God's from eternity past that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. God uses the evil intentions of man to accomplish his purposes. And many of the same men who put their vote against Jesus for his crucifixion were present with the persecution of this early church. We will often not understand God's actions, but we can trust that he is always good and always wise. Paul says it this way in Romans eleven thirty three. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What we do know, God's plan was for the gospel witness to start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria. And that's exactly what happened, just as he promised. God faithfully builds his church Conquering opposition from earthly powers as manifested in Saul and those with him. Well, let's look at the second section. That is in verses 4 to 8. Philip goes to Samaria. Luke records here that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. There's, the translations are unclear here. Was it the city of Samaria? Was it a city of Samaria? It's not really clear where he went. And knowing Luke's attention to detail, I guess Luke considered it not very important for us to know the exact city, or perhaps they at the time knew what he was talking about, but we don't need to know. The fact is he went to Samaria. Samaria was a region north of Jerusalem, north of the Jewish center, and between Galilee in the north, which was also Jewish, and Jerusalem in the south. was this region of Samaria. Philip that we read about here was one of Stephen's colleagues. If you remember the seven men who were chosen to administer the serving of the widows in the early church, Philip and Stephen were colleagues of that group of seven. And because of Stephen's execution and the ensuing persecution, now Philip goes to Samaria, and here is another one of those mysteries of God. Why is Stephen executed and Philip allowed to live? Why is Stephen buried and lamented and Philip now finding himself in Samaria? Again, we don't know other than to say in God's eternal plans and providence, this is what he does. We read here that the Samaritans in verse 6, with one accord, paid attention to Philip. They paid attention to him. They paid attention to what he said, and what he said was that he told them about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, they also paid attention to what he did. It says they saw the signs that he did, the miracles that verified the truthfulness of the message, validating that what he said about Jesus was true. I think about this as an illustration. Uh, every work day, uh, Laurel lays out a lunch on the table for me and I pack up my lunch and put it in my bag and I go to work. And every once in a while when I take that lunch out and open it up, there's something else in there that I hadn't packed. There's a little treat or a note or something, and I smile because that's a sign that Laurel has been there. That's a sign that she has been there. At a much greater level, we read that Philip is causing unclean spirits to come out of people, that many people who were paralyzed or lame were healed. These were a sign that Jesus was there. This is a sign that God was at work in ways that they had not seen before. And it's it's sort of an interesting statement. Again, it's one of those that we could easily uh, look over without dwelling on it. But when I saw this, it really struck me in verse 8. It says, There was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. What does that tell you? Previous to this, there was not much joy in that city. It implies that joy was in short supply, likely because of the oppression of many people with evil spirits and illnesses that was part of what they thought of as normal life. But it was a life apart from God. But when the gospel came, they tasted true freedom, true joy. Well, let's go on to the next section, verses nine to thirteen. Here, I entitled this one Simon the Magician. So we've heard about Saul, we've read about <coughs> Philip. Now we're introduced—excuse me—introduced me, introduced to another character named Simon. If you look at what it says about Simon in verse nine, <coughs> he—excuse me, one moment. <coughs> He amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Sort of interesting. He showed up and said, here I am. I'm somebody great. But he amazed them so much that they actually did acknowledge. They called him, if you look in verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. And what made him so great? It says that he was a magician. He practiced magic. He practiced magic in the city. Now, you understand, when I think practicing magic, I'm thinking David Copperfield, I'm thinking Penn and Teller, I'm thinking master illusionists, then maybe there was some of that going on here, but that's not what Luke means. The word there is referring to sorcery, to witchcraft. This is dark magic. Simon was involved in things that were miraculous things that were empowered by the forces of evil miraculous things empowered by the forces of evil. I wanted to give three examples of that. I'm gonna take a little bit of time to do this because I think it's important in our our Western scientific skeptical minds, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around these kinds of things that are going on. One story that came to me was when I was in Philadelphia in medical school, I was walking in Center City one day and there was a storefront uh, booth that was sticking out on the sidewalk And it was a fortune-telling booth. And in those days, I was very fond of whoever came up to me spending time talking to them about the Lord. And there was a young, smiling girl in this booth who was standing there. And I said, you know, I think I'd like to engage her and see what we could do with the gospel. So I went to her. I started to talk to her. And she was pleasant and smiling. And as soon as I mentioned, and I don't remember the exact conversation, but as soon as I mentioned Jesus and the Bible, her countenance changed. To the one of the most hateful, ev- I can only describe it as evil, glances. She stared fixedly at my, at my eyes with a look of hatred and evil that I just, I did not understand and had never experienced before or since. And not long after that, an older woman came out from the back and fixed that same hateful, evil gaze on me. Most of the time when I tried to share the gospel in the city with panhandlers or people coming up to me, the conversation ended when they walked away from me. This one ended when I walked away from there, realizing there was no open door for any further discussion at this time. And I can only pray that God used that engagement to open their hearts and minds. That illustrates the power and presence of evil and the hatred of the things of God. But I was looking for another example of things that actually happened. And things like this don't often, at least don't often happen in our country, come to our attention. So I was thinking of Haiti. Haiti is a place where I would imagine that black magic would occur. Our brother Paul Brown spent time in Haiti. He told me a story and he directed me actually to Shirley Salee for a story. And I I talked to Shirley. Those of you who know Shirley, she says hello. She says she misses everybody. She wanted me to extend her greeting and please don't forget them. They're doing fine. But she told me this story. She's a nurse who was working in Haiti, and a woman came to the hospital, a woman who couldn't move her arms. She couldn't lift her arms, and she came to the hospital to see what they could do about it. She was examined by the physicians and the doctors in the hospital. They really couldn't do anything. They couldn't help her. They referred her to the chaplain who had spoken with her, and, who, and he also referred her to Shirley. Through the course of this time, as the chaplain was sharing, she did come to faith in Jesus. She professed the faith in Jesus. Uh, but she still had this problem. She couldn't raise her arms. She was wearing a dress that was called a voodoo dress. She was a practitioner of voodoo, witchcraft, of sorcery in Haiti. And she was under the bondage of this, these things and couldn't get the dress off. She couldn't raise her arms to move her arms to get this off. And her daughter would not help her because her daughter was afraid that if she helped her mom get this dress off, that she would be a victim of the, the anger of the spirits who were holding her mom in power. So the chaplain sent her to Shirley, who helped her get her dress off, bathed her, clothed her. And then they took the dress and they took the jewelry that was part of the rituals of voodoo, a little pile in the yard and lit a match to it. And Shirley said this was very odd because Haiti is an island and there's a, there's a breeze, a wind that's going all the time. And she says what happened is when she lit the match, there was a thick black smoke that went straight up in the air. There, you know when you're at a campfire, right? You can't get away from the smoke. Everywhere you go, the smoke follows you. She said it wasn't what happened. This thick black smoke just went straight up in the air And when it was all done, she said, well, let's go clean up the ash so there's nothing left. And she said there was no ash to clean up. There was nothing left. But what happened was that this woman reacted in joyful glee that she can now move, that she was free from the bondage that she had been in because of the dark powers that had been holding her captive. And she was rejoicing that Jesus Christ had set her free Shirley was reluctant to even share this story because she she says, I'm not trying to glorify the evil powers at all. I'm not trying to give Satan his day. But the fact of the matter is there is an evil power there that holds people in bondage and fear. And that is what Simon the magician was doing. One final example is a scriptural example. If you remember, God sent Moses to Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And God said, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you and you have a staff, a shepherd's staff in your hand. Here's a miracle I want you to do. He says, when Pharaoh says, show me a miracle, you can throw that staff on the ground and it'll become a snake, a serpent. And Moses threw it down in front of Pharaoh and it did. But the scripture says the magicians of Egypt threw their staffs down and their staffs became serpents and snakes So God gives Moses this miracle that was actually copied by the Egyptian magicians. Now, if you know the story, Moses' staff ate up their staff, so God prevailed. But the point is, the Egyptian magicians were able to reproduce with their dark magic these same things that that Moses was able to do. And they did that for the next two miracles that Moses performed. It was on the third miracle that that they could not reproduce that they said, all right, this is from God, because we can't do this. The point here is that there is a, a very present personal power of evil that exists in this world that opposes all that belongs to God, and God's grace and power overcomes all of that, but that power is there, that power exists. Jesus warned us that such things would happen. He says in Matthew 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to mislead or lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So just because somebody comes and produces some great sign or miracle, if it tells us anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, they are not to be listened to. So here we read about Simon. Now we also read about Philip in this section. But what do we see about Philip? In verse 12, it says that Philip preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Unlike Simon, he did not elevate himself. He elevated Jesus. He did not point to himself. He pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, his message came with power. In Mark 1.27, the people were watching Jesus, and they responded this way, They said, what is this? This is a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Philip, like Jesus had, was preaching with a greater power than what they had seen with Simon. Even the unclean spirits were coming out. And Luke reports here that many people believed in Jesus and are baptized. Baptism was this public statement to announce their change of allegiance from their prior gods to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed. Even Simon himself believed. And he starts to follow Philip around. The former amazer is now himself amazed. He is the one who was amazing the people. Now he is amazed. Well, I believe there's a key truth here that we need to take home with us. Who are you paying attention to? Because the people of Samaria paid attention to Simon, but they also then paid attention to Philip. Who are you paying attention to? There were two voices here. There was the voice of the world energized by evil and spoken forcefully through Simon. And there was the voice of God revealed in Jesus, and spoken with power and authority by Philip. It's the same today. There really are only two voices. There's the voice of this world. Now, it has many forms. The forms of that voice are various religions, atheism, political ideologies, naturalism, spiritualism. For example, tarot cards or palm reading, fortune-telling or astrology, just to name a few. And these things are often dramatic they're forceful, they're compelling, they cause us, many people at least, to listen. So there's the voice of this world, but there's the voice of God through Jesus Christ. that's found in the Bible, and it's found in God's people. Only one of those voices is true, and only one of those voices leads to freedom and eternal life. The other voice claims, like Simon, to be something great, but in the end it leads to bondage and fear and death. Sorcery does have power, just not ultimate power. So be careful who you listen to. Life is found only in Jesus Christ. So here we see that God faithfully builds his church, conquering opposition from dark spiritual powers of evil. God faithfully builds his church, conquering opposition from dark spiritual powers of evil. Well, let's look at the next section, verses 14 to 24. This one I entitled Peter and John Go to Samaria, another set of strange events that we're going to see here. In fact, two of those strange events. Event number one we see in verses 14 to 17. The basic story is simple enough. Peter and John come down from Jerusalem to check out what's going on in Samaria. They heard that the Samaritans had accepted Jesus as their Savior, and so Peter and John are sent by the other apostles to go down and just check out what's going on. But verse 15 tells us that they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them. So why did Peter and John have to come down for this additional step of laying their hands on these believers from Samaria to receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer to this starts in the fact that it is rooted in Jewish and Samaritan history. There's a thousand-year history of hostility between them. A thousand years of hostility between them. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. There are three examples of that. John 4.9 says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In John 8.48, one of my favorite ones, sad but favorite, is that the Jewish leaders are trying to insult Jesus. And they give their greatest insult in this statement are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's our greatest insult that they could come up with, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon. And then thirdly, we knew from history that Jews going from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north would often take a longer route around Samaria in order to avoid going through Samaria itself, which was a shorter distance. Again, John Stott in his commentary says it this way when commenting on why Peter and John had to come. Would the long-standing rift be perpetuated? The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? Or would there be separate factions of Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians in the church of Jesus Christ? I think that's a profound statement. The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? Or would there be separate factions of Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians in the church of Jesus Christ? So Peter and John's coming demonstrated that the hostility between Jews and Samaritans is broken down by the gospel. There are no second-class Christians. There is one church of Jesus Christ. God had already said in Acts 1 that the gospel would start in Jerusalem, then to Judea, which was another Jewish area, and Samaria, and then to the Gentiles. And we find it in the book of Acts that at each of these three junctures, the Spirit comes to them by observable signs at the hands of the apostles. When When the Spirit comes to Jerusalem, to Samaria... And to the Gentiles, at each of those points, the Spirit's coming is by observable signs at the hands of the apostles. This indicates the unity of the church, as Paul later says in Ephesians 4, in one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So I'd like to use this opportunity to use a phrase I don't think we've used yet in the book of Acts. This event of the Peter and John coming down and laying their hands on the Samaritans that they could receive the Holy Spirit is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. And that's a phrase that you have to pay attention to going through the book of Acts. It is descriptive, that is, it is describing what God was doing in a unique way to establish his church. It is not prescriptive, it is not prescribing or dictating what is to be the normal experience for all time now. So you need to be very careful when reading through the book of Acts that we separate out what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Well, that's the first event, Peter and John coming down. The second event we see in verses 18 to 24. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Simon is a new believer who's not yet left all of his old ways behind. When Simon sees that the Spirit comes by the laying on of hands by Peter and John, he does what is common in the sorcery world, and that is... He offers them money so that he too can give the spirit by the laying on of his hands. Peter gives him a very lengthy and very harsh rebuke that almost seems over the top to our hearing. At least it was to mine. I'm going to read that. So Simon asks Peter, he actually doesn't ask him, he offers him money. He said, I'd like to buy this opportunity to to have the spirit come by the laying on of my hands. And this is Peter's answer in verse 20. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon himself responds, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Why this harsh rebuke from Peter? This is important because it is part of the age-old conflict and one that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Is salvation from sin to a relationship with God something that we can earn or buy or obtain in any way by our own efforts? Or is salvation a free gift of God that he offers to us without cost? Now, to say that it is free doesn't mean that it's not costly. What it means is that God can offer it freely to us because Jesus already paid the highest cost that could be paid. If something gives, somebody gives you something for free, that's only because somebody already has paid for it. It may be free to you, but somebody else has already paid for it our salvation, our relationship to God through Jesus Christ is free to us because Jesus has already paid for it. Thus, to try to buy God's favor with money is an insult to Jesus' death and resurrection, which was the purchase price for that favor. And it's a rejection of God's free offer of his grace. As I was preparing for this, I actually found that there's an English word that comes out of this passage, not a word that we often use, but it's a word called simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y, simony. And the definition is the buying or selling of a church position or privilege. The buying or selling of a church position or privilege. So we've already seen that God faithfully builds his church by conquering opposition from earthly powers and by conquering opposition from dark spiritual powers of evil. And here we see that God faithfully builds his church, conquering opposition from both long-standing prejudice between Jews and Samaritans and false beliefs about the nature of salvation. Well, in verse 25, we read the simple thing that Peter and John return to Jerusalem. They stay in Samaria for a while. We don't know how long. When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they return to Jerusalem. And as they go back, what do they do? They are preaching the gospel to the Samaritans as they go. The gospel advances to and in Samaria. You should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria. And as we go forward, we'll see next, as time goes on, the gospel getting to the Gentiles as well. So I'd like to offer some closing thoughts As God promised in chapter 1, he brought the gospel first to Jerusalem, now to Judea and Samaria. And as I said, we'll see as it goes to the Gentiles, which includes us as well. God is at work in and through his people to advance his kingdom against the forces of evil, even using those forces of evil to accomplish his purposes. The gospel was greatly opposed then as it is today by those who hate God, those who hate Jesus, those who hate the gospel, those who hate those who follow Jesus. It wouldn't be hard in our culture to find people that would express those sentiments. And the opposition comes from earthly powers, as we saw in Saul, by supernatural powers, as we saw with Simon's sorcery, and by false religion, as we saw in Simon's attempt to purchase spiritual blessings. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the people of this world, even the nice people of this world, oppose Christianity and Christians, but as Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, we saw a lot of crazy things in this passage, intense persecution, men and women thrown into prison, unclean spirits being cast out, dark magic, the coming of the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands, but what about your crazy life? When things that happen that are impossibly hard or don't make sense, be encouraged. God faithfully still builds his church, which is us. He conquers all forms of opposition. He is bigger than anything that can come against you, that can come against us. And God is going to fulfill all his promises out of his faithful love towards you. What are some of those promises? God promises to never leave us or forsake us promises to meet all of our needs, to make us like Jesus, to rescue us from the evils of this world, to bring us safely to our new home with him in heaven. Nothing can stop him. He works through all things, including any and all opposition. Don't be deceived. If something in your life looks impossible or like a tragedy or a terrible injustice, God is still working on your behalf. God is marching relentlessly toward fulfilling all of his purposes and will continue to do so until Jesus returns and makes all things right. God faithfully builds his church, conquering all forms of opposition. His ways are beyond understanding. His plan will not fail, and he will see to that himself. I'm reminded of the words of Revelation 11:15: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. I'd like us just to pause here for a few moments in silent reflection as you just ask the Lord what he would have you do with this, what you've heard this morning, and then I will close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you that as then so now you are faithful to your promises. You are faithful to fulfill all that you have promised to do and will relentlessly work to that end. We are your children not by our doing but by yours and you have promised that nothing can separate us from your love. There is no power in earth or heaven there is nothing that can keep you from bringing us safely home and so Lord we pray that you would cause our faith to rise cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority help us to see words of power that can never fail and may their truth prevail over unbelief And by your grace, we'll stand on your promises. And by faith, we'll walk as you walk with us. So speak to us, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.